So in Mark chapter 13, you'll remember that last week we studied what Jesus had to say about the Great Tribulation. It was a kind of a scary time period to read about if you're not a believer, because anybody that's not a believer, if you go through the Great Tribulation and you do become a believer in that time, a lot of people say, well, I'm not really sold on it yet, but if Jesus comes, you know, if, if there's tribulations, then I'll know he's real, and then I'll surrender my life to him. But until then, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, the problem is, is if that is your take, and Jesus uh, said that the Great Tribulation will be a time of, of great persecution, if you want to live in that time, and then you decide you're going to follow Jesus, the problem is, is during that seven years, if you become a Christian, that you will be martyred for your faith. You will be killed for your faith. And so it'll be much more harder to be a Christian then than it is just to go ahead and surrender your life to him now. And uh, that's important for people to know because they think, oh, I'll just wait until I can know for sure. That's not faith. Faith is the hope of uh, the evidence of things hoped for. It's the, the, the substance of things unseen. Thank you, Jared. So persecution will happen during that time of great tribulation. But on the heels of that time period, Jesus will return. So that's the good news. The bad news is there will be a time of tri trial and tribulation. Uh, but the good news is that on the end of it, Jesus will return. And he will judge the wicked and have his final word over those who reject him. But just before Jesus' return and at the end of the great tribulation that will last seven years, Jesus describes what seems to be a description. He describes a description. He gives a description of the stars, the sun, the sun and the moon falling and failing. Now, <clears throat> verse 24 of last week's reading in uh, chapter 13 said, But in those days... After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, which makes sense because its light comes from the sun, and the stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now Jesus' statement here is interesting to me because of what we typically use the sun, the moon, and the stars for. Oftentimes, I think if somebody read this, they go, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is, is that the sun, we use it for light, number one, we use it for heat. And we also use it for time. That's how we know when a day starts. The sun comes up. And when it goes down at night, we know that the day is 12 hours over, approximately. And then we know when it comes up the next day, that means it's been 24 hours. That's how we keep time. And somebody didn't just make it up. That was already in existence when man goes, you know what, we should call that a day. No, God called it a day in Genesis. So then, um, what do we use the moon for? You think, well, nothing really, right? Well, we use it for light at night. It reflects the sun. It's kind of a nightlight for us. God knew that we'd need a little extra light. And then uh, time. We keep time by the moon for the monthly cycle. It's kind of, it has this, the phases. And so um, we use that for that importance. Also, because of the gravita gravitational pull, it keeps our tide from, it keeps the oceans from coming up over the continents. So that's important to know. But then what about the stars? Okay, you, you can point out what we need the sun for, you can point out what we need the moon for, but what about the stars? We don't really use them for anything. Well, we navigate by them. Those that cross the oceans, they use them as kind of set points, kind of like we would street signs in the, in the, on the roads when the snow's not covering them, but we, we use them for kind of set points. Okay, that's where the North Star is, and they'll take, um, I think it's called an azimuth. Is that the right word? But they use, it's probably not, I probably just butchered it. Huh? It is. it is. Okay, it's an azimuth. But they, they measure where they're at in the ocean because there's nothing to judge space off of. 
And so they point towards that star and they measure the degrees to the Earth's horizon. And then they can kind of figure out approximately how far they are from it. And then they measure from another spot and they use trigonometry. And they can kind of tell, hey, this is, a, <clears throat> this is about where we're at on the world. Which that's important because you don't have, hey, make a left at Jones Pond. And you, know, you don't have those things out in the middle of the ocean. You just have a bunch of water. You know, hey, I think I saw a whale here one time. That's where we're at. It doesn't work. So they have the stars. So the point is, is that the, all these things, we trust in them as if they're always going to be there. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Before I return, not one jot, not one tittle will be removed. It was kind of like dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Not one of those will pass away. Everything that God said in his word will come to pass. And so he said, you need to know this ahead of time. But then he tells them right on the heels of Jesus returning, all these things that we've always trusted in as always being constant, they'll fail. And so there are many who think they can tell the future by the stars. You guys ever heard of a horoscope? A horoscope, it just means literally to, uh, let's see here. I looked up the definition because I'm not that smart. It's a forecast. You think about the forecast, you think about weather. But this is a forecast of a person's future. Typically, it includes a, uh, a delineation between the character and our circumstances. And they're kind of vague. If you've ever read one, they kind of go, well, today you might, you know, something good will happen to you and you'll meet someone. Well, I mean, you're going to meet somebody. There's people everywhere. So they're real vague. But... They do that by looking at the positions of the stars and they make their predictions based on those, based on what? Your birth month, right? So, <clears throat> but the, the origin of that, and I was just making a point about one of the things that we kind of try to find information about ourselves and about the future from, is from the stars. And they actually did that according to Genesis. After the flood, basically they built this tower called Babel and it was built by a man, you won't believe this, his name was Nimrod. Now, who would ever name their kid Nimrod? Well, the reason they shouldn't is because this guy was like the, the king of kings at that time. He called himself that. And he basically, he started this, uh, basically these pagan religions where they would all, they built this tower because after the flood, they no longer wanted to, like we would in a snowstorm, they're like, you know what? We don't want to run out of power ever again. Because that happens sometimes in a snowstorm, right? And so what do we get? We get a generator. We go, okay, I'm going to plug my house into this generator. So if I, the grid ever goes down, I can still have power. I can survive on my own. Well, what they said is we don't want to obey God. We don't want to have to depend upon him for uh, our salvation. We want to be able to save ourselves if something goes wrong. So the, world, the whole world flooded, but we're, we got a solution. We're going to build this tower. It's called the Tower of Babel. And they're going to, they didn't call it that. I think the Lord called it that because after that, he spread them out so they could no longer do this. But they built this big, huge tower all the way up to the sky. And they were trying to reach heaven, basically. If you think about, you know, hear the song, The Stairway to Heaven. People are always trying to find a way to heaven without you being involved with God at all. Well, they did this. This is no new thing. They built this big building and they actually covered the outside of the building with pitch, which is what you would put on your roof to keep it from leaking. Well, many scholars say that they believe that they tried to do that so they didn't have to listen to God anymore. They could save themselves. This building would be able to be waterproof. And so they built this building. They would go up to the top and they would worship the stars. They would try to find meaning in their lives from just figuring out what the stars had to tell them. 
Now, what do we know about stars? They're created. God created them. So if, they, if we can learn anything about ourselves through the stars, it's really just learning from the Lord. But they weren't doing that. They were trying to find some other way to find wisdom than by going to God. So another way that man uses, kind of, they kind of assume that everything that's created will always be there. But they're, um, <clears throat> So while they were up there in the tower, they would try to gain insight. My point is, is that in all these things, the sun, the moon, and the stars, we assume they'll always be there. But Jesus tells them very poignantly, he says, these things that we think will always be there and have always been there as long as I've been alive will no longer be. They'll give up. And uh, it seems as though the power that holds them together, it's like God goes, you know what? And he lets go. And at that point, those things give up. Because the reality is, is that everything that you and I know about is held together by the word of God. It's held together by the power of God through His Word. He spoke everything into existence by His mouth. And so we think about that and we go, okay, well, you know, they've always tried to... You guys ever see what happens when they try to split an atom? They don't know what holds it together other than positive and negative forces, but the reality is is that what holds them together is if you pull an atom apart, it's called an atom bomb. And an explosion happens that levels an entire city the size of probably St. Louis depending on the size of the atom and all that kind of stuff. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I know if you try to split an atom, that little force that they go, it's a positive and negative force. It's not like a magnet. It's like it's held together by the power of God. And so when you separate that thing, that's how explosions happen. And uh, my point being that when God lets go, those things will no longer be. So this event, this natural occurrence seemingly, of God letting go and all these things giving up, leads way for the return of Jesus Christ. So in verse 26, it says, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. So this letting go and these temporary things giving up and failing and falling leads way. It's kind of like the curtain opening, and all of a sudden the things that are temporary fall And then God, eternal, steps onto the scene, and he's revealed. All things that are temporary will give up, and all things that are eternal will always show up at that point. And so Jesus steps onto the scene, steps into his creation, it seems. And when he returns, he will gather together, it says, those who have already passed on to heaven. Now this is interesting because they had a question about this in the book of Thessalonians. They're like, okay, so if Jesus comes back and I haven't died yet, what happens then? Or if Jesus comes back and I already died and I'm in the ground, do I not to get, get to go be with God? And what he says here is that at that point, Jesus, when he returns, he will gather together those who have already passed on to heaven and he will gather together those who are his that are still in every part of the earth. So he'll gather them from the four winds. And that's just a, a fancy way to say he'll gather them from the east, the west, the north, just every direction. He'll bring them all together into one spot. And we'll be right there together with him. And then Jesus transitions from describing the event of his coming, and he describes using a parable. We've talked about the meaning of a parable. It's to take an earthly story to cast alongside, to help out, to understand it, a heavenly meaning, a heavenly description of something. And so he gives a parable, and he describes using this just one more sign that the time is drawing near for this event to take place, for Jesus Christ to return. So verse 28 says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. 
We've talked about a fig tree before. And oftentimes Jesus refers to the nation of Israel by using the idea of a fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. So these things happening, he's talking about everything that we've described in the 13th chapter of Mark. And since I've, just, I've kind of spread it out over three weeks, it's, there's a lot there. Um, he's talked about persecution. He's talked about trials. Uh, but then he talks about this falling apart, essentially, of the creation. But then he likened the signs of his second coming to the sprouts or the growth of leaves on a fig tree. Both of these... The growth and the sprout point to the glories to come, the full flowering of the earth and the return of Christ. But it is important to know that the fig tree specifically symbolizes the nation of Israel. Because that's that's why God keeps time by. We can look at the nation of Israel and what's happening there. And we can kind of know what the time period is of, of His coming. Now, I know that we've talked about the fig tree before, but there are a few things about the fig tree that, you can give, that can give us insight into what Jesus is telling those that he's speaking to here. They would all know about fig trees because they're common in Israel. Now, we don't have them here, um, not that I know of anyway, but they were very, very common there, and they are today too. There's, there's fig trees all over the place. But we may not have as much knowledge about them here in Missouri. The fig tree has a regular pattern. The leaves appear... And then summer follows. Now that seems like, well, duh. Okay, spring happens, the leaves come, then summer. Right. That makes sense with every tree. But it's different than all the other trees that grew in that area. Because all the other trees, where they would produce their fruit early on in summer, their leaves would come out early spring. So for their leaves to pop out means that they actually pop out later towards summer then they, they don't pop out like in March, like some of the early bloomers. They would bloom like right before summer started. So dog days come, and that's when they're deciding, okay, we're going to pop out our, our, uh, our leaves. <laughs> so in the same way, he says, when these signs, particularly the abomination of desolation we talked about last week, when that takes place, when it appears, the world can know that the triumphant return of Jesus is near. He specifically says, at the doors. Now, when, you have, when you've gone to somebody's house and you ring the doorbell and you're at the door, does that mean you're on your way or does that mean you've already arrived? It's like, it means it's coming right now. So he's telling them, when that happens, you know that it's going to take place. One man who commented on this parable said that the fig tree is different than all the other trees of Israel because the fig loses its leaves in the winter. And in contrast to the almond tree, which was also common, uh, that one blossoms very early in the spring, and the fig tree shows signs of life only later, late spring, right before summer, meaning that it looks like there is no life in the nation of Israel. This tree, this fig tree would be sitting there, and it would look like, we need to cut this thing down. It's just wasting soil. We need to get rid of it. But he says, don't cut it down, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to sprout leaves way later than it seems like. It's going to look completely dead, completely desolate, but... But give it time, because right at the time you think it's going to die, like you need to get rid of it, that's when the sprouts are going to come forth. And the nation of Israel is the same way. It seems like there's nothing going on, and then it's going to sprout. All of a sudden, there's going to be this new growth that's going to take place. And so, don't assume that it's dead. Wait for it to sprout. And when it does sprout, it's going to surprise everyone. 
Now, this is interesting, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, basically, the nation of Israel re-sprouted for the third time in history in 1948. At that time, uh, and it's unlike any other nation, every other nation that's ever been taken captive, taken to another land and dispersed, essentially, it has never come back and said, you know what, we're a nation again. It just doesn't happen. As soon as you take a people group and you spread them out, and what the Babylonians did, the Assyrians those that were from the nations that would take them captive, they would actually take some of the people, the best and the brightest, they would take them back to their nation and they would leave kind of the, what we would call the scrubs. You know, you think about a basketball team, they'd take third string. They were like, okay, you can stay here and then they would repopulate it with their people mixing them up so they would lose their cultural identity. Basically, it would be like, People from a different town, Ellington, they're like, hey, we're going to repopulate. We're going to take you captive, take half your people, all the best basketball players. Now, half the people, they're going to take them down to Ellington, and then they're going to repopulate up here, and then there would be mixed marriages, and they would get rid of, there would no longer be any pride, A.V. Ellington, they would just kind of make it all one. Now, we, I, I've learned from being at the Thanksgiving tournament, it would take much more than that. There, there seems to be some sort of rivalries going on that, go way beyond their borders of what anything I've ever understood because I, uh, I went to the Thanksgiving tournament thinking I was just going to a tournament. But this, this was big time. Like, I watched it. I was so excited. The people are coming out from out of the cracks. I didn't know there was that many people around here. And all of a sudden, we've got people in every corner of the room cheering so excitedly that I would, like, it was crazy. Anyway, it was exciting. But to see that cultural identity, uh, these people didn't have that. They've been dispersed. They've been taken to other lands. And many of them, once they were in captivity, they were like, hey, we got homes here. It's pretty nice. We don't really want to go back to Israel. Many of them had been several generations. They didn't really care about Israel. They were like, hey, we're comfortable here. I don't even remember Grandpa so-and-so that, that got taken captive. Why don't we just stay? But what happened was there was a remnant that went back to the nation of Israel. And at that time, God built up the nation again. We talked about that when they rebuilt the temple. But then in 1948, after they were basically dispersed, um, God started the nation again, and they became an official nation. So I kind of got ahead of myself there, but let's read verse 30. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus says to them, This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place, the budding of the nation of Israel. Verse 31 Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In other words, the generation that sees the rebirth of Israel as a nation will not pass away until these prophecies are fulfilled. But what does he mean when he says the phrase, this generation? I mean, I think about it and I go, okay, so anybody that was born within 60 to 70 years ago, that's a generation. Or sometimes people say, well, it was 40 years. 40 years is a generation. I don't know. Now, I can give you what some people have assumed. It says, some have argued that this generation refers to Jesus' contemporaries, the, the disciples, the apostles. I disagree because they didn't see the moon not work anymore. They didn't see the sun stop to, you know, go, go black. They didn't see the stars fall. So I don't think that this argument can be true. Uh, I submit to you that Jesus' return is imminent in our generation. And lots of people say, well, every generation of Christians has always said that. But I think he'll come back in our generation because the prophecy that was just read says that when the fig tree's branch becomes tender and puts forth leaves, that summer is at the door. 
And I mentioned several times that Scripture refers to Israel over and over as a fig tree. The nation of Israel has been disbanded several times in history, and yet, unlike any other nation that's been disbanded and made no longer a nation, every time Israel has been reestablished as a nation. In 1948, Israel once again became a nation against all odds and predictions by even the secular historians said, oh, they're done. They're just a, a dead nation. They're no longer going to come back. Yet, um, they are once again a nation, and they remain a sovereign nation to this day. So many assert that from the reestablishing of Israel as a nation, the branch producing leaves, that this is the generation that will by no means pass away until Christ's return. Um, now, many would argue that with me, and I'm not here to argue this point, only to express that no matter what your opinion on this is, that this life is a vapor. We know that. It could go at any time, whether it's by tragedy or whether it's by natural causes. We don't know how many days we have. God has given us a certain amount of days. But if you believe that Jesus is going to come back in your generation, it's not an unhealthy thing. Many people go, well, you'll become so heavenly minded that you won't be any earthly good. But many Christians and many people are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. And that's what God has done. He's called us out of the darkness and into the light to be earthly good by heaven's means. And so God hasn't called us to be earthly. He's called us to be godly. And the one way we can do that is by knowing that we will be called to account on what we have done with this life. Now, my question for me and for you is, will you be of the good and the faithful servants who have been obedient to proclaim his name until his return? It's one of the reasons we take communion is to proclaim his return uh, will you be ready when he returns if it is in your generation? Or will you be ready if you go to be with him next week, if it's before his return? Either way, we'll get to see him. Uh, the main application of all of this is that we are to be prepared. We're to be ready because as the next few verses say, no one knows when he'll return. No one knows the day or the hour. We can know the times and the seasons, but we can't know the day and the hour. Jesus didn't even know those things. He didn't give those to his disciples. Verse 32 says, But of that day and that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son. See, Jesus didn't even know. But only the Father. He says, Take heed, in other words, listen, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Now you might think to yourself, Well, if no one knows the day or the hour, then why have we just discussed what Jesus said about the signs of the time of Jesus' return? Well, like I said, we can know the signs and we can know the seasons. We can know what it's going to look like leading up to it, but we won't know the specific day or the hour. So, but what I wanted to point out is that Jesus has told this for, to us for a reason, and I've talked about that the last couple of weeks. He didn't tell it to us so we would panic, but he told it to us so that we would be able to be prepared, so that we would have motivation to live this life for him. And I think it's interesting because we... I love that God, in letting us know all of this ahead of time, He shows us how much He truly cares for His children. Because in Je Jesus explained this a little further in John chapter 15, uh, verse 13 through 15. If you can turn there with me, if you got your Bible. John chapter 15. I love it because I've read this verse so many times, um, but at the same time, I've never really thought about it this way. I'm like... Why does he give his disciples so much insight into what's going to happen next? But he says, Greater love has no one than this, 
than to lay down one's life for his friends. So that's important, right? He's going to lay down his life for his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So that adds another layer to it. And then verse 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. So when Jesus gives us insight into what's going to happen in the future, realize that that's because he loves us. When we tell our children, Hey, we're going to do this tomorrow, we're telling them because we want them to be involved in what the family's doing. We want them to be prepared. We want them to get their, their chores done so we can go have fun. You tell, he tells us ahead of time so that we can be a part of it. He wants relationship. And so when he tells us ahead of time, he's doing it so, number one, to show us how much he cares, and number two, so we can be involved in it. The word in the Greek used for friend, because I've heard lots of people say, well, Jesus is my friend. You know, he likes me. He, uh, you know, we're, we're homeboys. Um, but that's not the idea. I looked up the Greek word there used for friend. And I won't get into the, the, the word because I can't say it, number one. But it's, it's where we get our word fellow. Talk about fellow man. Um, meaning someone that you are fond of or that you hold dear to you. A fellow would be your, in today's terms, probably your bestie. You know, your friend, your brother from another mother, you know, somebody that you, you get together with and you, you, you jive, you like everything, you guys enjoy doing things together. And Jesus has got this personal relationship with his followers he desires to have that goes beyond like, hey, we'll hang out sometime, maybe. It's like we desire to get together. And so Jesus here, he uses this word friend and I think it's funny. How do you know that Jesus considers you one of these friends? I'd ask myself that this week. How do I know that he considers me a friend? Because he says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Okay, so how do I know that he's my friend? Number one, he's laid down his life for me. And I know that. I hold that truth to be personally dear. It affects me. It affects how I live. And then in verse, uh, I think, 14... He says, you are my friends. This is the second qualifier. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So number one, we know that he's our friend or that we're his friend. He's made us his friend if he laid down his life for us. Well, we know from John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, for God so loved who? The world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. So right there we see, Okay, how do I know if God's my friend? If, did he die for you? Well, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, God so loved the world, everyone in it, everyone that created, everyone that ever lived, he so loved the world. And so if he died for you, which we just qualified, he died for everyone, then he is your friend. But then there's a second part that I think a lot of people forget about. He says, you are my friends if... That if is a it's a it's a qualifier. If you do whatever I command you. So number two, Jesus laid down his life for the whole world, everyone in it. But no, uh, excuse me. All fit the first part. There's quite a few less who fit the second part. When you agree, there are many. He died for all, but he says for that whoever believes in him. Okay, so what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, why do you say that you love me? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I do? 
So the second part is, is that we have a part with him. He's done his part. Are we doing our part? And our part doesn't earn favor with him. We don't have to earn his friendship. When we don't do anything for him, he still loves us. He still loved the whole world that he gave his only son. But the fact is, is that our part in responding to how much he loves us is by following him. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And so I just thought that was an interesting devotional part. But anyway, how, how amazing is it that God himself desires to tell us his plans ahead of time because he's made us his friends. He wants us to be involved if we will only respond to his invitation. So verse 34, it's like a man, he says, going to a far country who left his house and he gave authority to his servants and to each his work. And he commanded the doorkeeper to watch. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning. Lest, coming suddenly, he find that you're asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Watch. It's kind of like when the forecast says that there's going to be a whole bunch of possible ice and snow. What is the first thing the kids do when they hear the snow in the forecast? They either bug their parents until they turn on J98 or whatever the radio station is to check if school's closed, or they check Facebook, and they're watching the radar. Now, most people, they keep track of the weather. But all of a sudden, teenagers and young children are like, we need to watch the news. We can find out if school's canceled, and we can also see how much snow we're going to get. All of a sudden, they're interested. Hey, we need, you know, I'm intellectual all of a sudden. Let's watch the news. I don't watch the news. But the point is, is that Jesus tells us to watch. And what do we do? Well, he says there, be on watch, lest when I come, you're found sleeping. What do we do? Jesus says, be ready. We're like, yeah, but this is going on. And I'm kind of tired. And I really, I don't know, I'm worn out. But when the snow forecast comes, we will stay up all night to watch the news. We will get our four-wheelers ready and we'll go. And I'm the same way. I'm like, it's going to snow. I'm still a little kid. I like playing in it. I have a toe strap just waiting to help somebody out of a ditch. Because I just want to get in the snow and use the four-wheel drive. But Jesus' parable of the absent master of the house, it's unique to Mark. The point of the parable is that the master could return at any time. So all the servants must be vigilant and watchful. The problem comes, though, from many who say that every generation of Christians thought that Jesus would return during their lifetime. Well, he didn't tell us the the day or the hour, so, I mean, everybody thinks he's coming tomorrow. Well, we should live in the light of, it it could happen. Um, But if you've ever had a discussion with somebody who's an unbeliever and appealed to them concerning Christ's return that he promised they will bring up the fact that he's not returned for over 2,000 years. So why do you think he's going to come back this year? Why do you think he's going to come back in your lifetime? What makes you so special? Well, just that he said he would return. That's all I know. But the funny thing is, is that there are many who have asked that question. You know, why do you think he's going to return in your lifetime? But how do you respond to somebody like that? I was talking to somebody last week after church, and he was like, well, every generation thought that he was going to return it in their, in their generation. Why do you believe that? And I said, well, Jesus told me, and then also in Second Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter gives an account of this. 
So in 2 Peter chapter 3, go ahead and turn there because we're going to read most of the chapter. I'm just going to read through it. I'm not going to belabor it. I'm not going to overcomplicate over, uh, it. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes to the believers there. They were believers that had been dispersed. They were Jewish Christians. And uh, they were being persecuted. And no doubt, people had asked them, why do you believe Jesus is going to return? Why are you banking your hope in that? You can't trust Jesus. You know, where's, where is he right now? People are getting murdered. Christians are being beaten to death. Where is, where's your Savior? So Peter addresses this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, Beloved. Now, first of all, I want to point out that when he calls his believers, he calls them beloved. That's the word, that's the term many times in the Old Testament that men would use for their wife. So he looks at the church not just as some person, not just as some gal, not some girlfriend, but his wife, his bride, someone who he holds in extremely high esteem. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. And an epistle is just a letter to a church. It's, not, it's just a fancy Bible word. In both of which, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, he says, scoffers will come in the last days. They'll walk according to their lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, since the last generation died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So they're saying, hey, what's this promise of his return? Where is he? All things have always happened the same way. Nothing's ever changed. Why do you think he's going to come back? But then verse 5 says, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, The heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Talking about the flood in Genesis, where Noah built the the ark. Verse 7 says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, in spite of all this, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now many have asserted that this means that creation really took more than one day at a time. The seven day creation. Six days of work, one day of rest. They're like, oh, well, the, they'll say, oh, well, the world is thousands of years older than we think as Christians because God definitely couldn't speak the world into existence in six days. And so they assert that, see this, says it right here, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But what this means is that, this just simply means that the Lord, since he's outside of time, time doesn't really mean anything to him. So he doesn't change his plans on the passing of time. He doesn't go, you know, it has been a really long time, so I guess my plans are changed. What he's saying is that my plans are the same. Just because it's been 2,000 years, I don't only live 90 years, so that's not a long time to me. So verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some would count slackness. In other words, He's going to fulfill it. But His patience toward us, not willing, He is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, that all should come back to Him. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away, which we just described in Mark, 
with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, remember they're banking on the promise that Jesus made, they're still going, hey, I don't care what anybody says. According to Jesus' promise that will remain, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, pure. Keep yourselves pure. And consider that the long-suffering or the patience of the Lord means salvation. So the main points I want to make from that is that there will be those who scoff. They will mock. They will disagree that you'll say Jesus is going to return and they'll go, ah, bull hockey or whatever they'll say. But realize that the Lord's patience, him waiting to return, will mean salvation for many who are still to be saved. Think about that for myself. Had Jesus returned 10 years ago, I would not be saved. I would not get to be with him for eternity. If Jesus returned a week ago, there were many people that would say, I wouldn't get in. I'd be done. I would be eternally separated from God. So realize that when Jesus doesn't return and he allows all these bad things to happen, it's because those that are still being saved are still being saved. He's waiting until the last person that's going to respond to his good news says, I surrender. I'm in. Please, just take my life. I, I, I'm done. I, I've tried. I've tried to earn it on my own. I'm, I'm done. I'm undone. I need salvation. I'm a sinner. I'm, I realize that now. And at that point when that happens, that will be the end. But in the meantime, he says, consider what manner of person that you ought to be. Oftentimes we get all worked up about everyone else, but he's saying in, in the light of these truths, what manner of person ought you to be? Watch for, look forward to, and expect His coming, and be diligent to live for Him in purity. That's a, that's a powerful word, purity. I have to think about my own thought life over the last week, and I'll, I'll say, hey, that was not pure. The things that I was looking at, the things that I was giving myself to, the things that I pondered on, the anger, you know, and, and you can just go through the list. And then at the end of the day, I can go, Lord, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for forgiving me. Lord, forgive me for, you name it, from that day. And the Lord's like, I want to. You're forgiven. You know, you're washed. I've washed you, made you clean, white as snow. He says, be diligent to live for him in purity and consider that salvation for many others is his purpose for waiting to return. So be watching for those to share the good news with. If he is waiting to return because there's people that need to be saved, that tells me that I have a purpose to be here. There are people that are waiting to hear the good news from me. Many will reject it, but there's going to be a few people that are going to go, why has nobody ever told me this before? And I know lots of people that, that grew up in church or were around church people, and they never heard the gospel. They never heard that Jesus died for them personally, not just for other people, which they did, which he did, but for them personally. They, they hear that good news and they go, you've got to be kidding me. 
He loved me? Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were still sinning against him, Christ died for us. Not because I deserved it. Not the message of Santa Claus that says, hey, if you're good, I'll give you gifts. No, Jesus says, you're not good. I give you a gift. I give you salvation. I give you eternity with me. Not because you deserved it, but because, because I love you. And so I look at it this way. Every day the Lord leaves us here means that someone else still needs to hear the message. So who is that person? And I pray that. I'm not very bold. I'll, get, I'll be honest with you. I get nervous. But the Lord sometimes, He just drops somebody in your path and it's like, it's obvious. That person just needs Jesus, just like I did. So next week, we've studied all the end time stuff. We'll move on and we'll look at Jesus as He leaves the Mount of Olives, and he continues learning the detail. we continue learning the details of his purposeful walk. Because if you'll remember, this has kind of been a, a parenthesis in the middle of Jesus' last week on earth, and we'll go back to his march towards the cross. And all the things that took place as he led to it, we'll find that Judas will betray him, one of the men that he spent the most time with, and we'll see how that unfolds and how Jesus, the Lamb of God, the most powerful of all creation, that you know, the, the God-man, God in human flesh, though he had all the power at his um, disposal, said, you know what, I'm going to lay my life down. No man takes my life, but I lay it down for my friends, as we just read. So, Father, thank you so much that you willingly reveal to us the secrets of the mysteries, not secrets, but the mystery of what's going to take place. And Lord, we don't know what day or what hour that's going to take place, but we know that you promised, and so we bank on that. We, we place our hope in you. We don't place our hope in, in stars or in the moon or in, or in the sun, but we, we place our hope fully upon you. So Lord, help us to do that more because it's only by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, that we can be convicted that we need to live every day for you, knowing that at any point you could return but also knowing that if, if you did return, there are many loved ones, uh, many friends, many family members that uh, wouldn't get to spend eternity with you if we don't share uh, the hope that we have. And so, Lord, embolden us as uh, your disciples to do just that, to live according to that calling. Help us to be pure. Purify our lives, Lord. We always have something that you could um, teach us about yourself that would reveal to us that we have some more sin in our lives. Lord, purify us. Make us your, your spotless and blemishless uh, bride as your church, Lord. So Lord, we just finish with this song. We thank you for the Christmas season. Thank you that the, the Christmas truth is not just that you came as a baby, but that baby became a man. And that man became our sacrifice, our savior. And Lord, uh, that you became our Lord. And and Lord, I just pray that you would help us more and more each day to learn how to follow you and to worship you with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.